Educational neuroscience. Is it a fad or is it for real? Hello, I'm Colin Klupik and you're listening to Learning Capacity. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with neuroscience-based programs since 1999. If you'd like to know more about individualised language and reading programs for your child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And you can comment on this podcast, send your emails to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. Mima Mason is the Cogment Manager for Pearson Australia and has previously been on the show to discuss working memory, but she also spends much of her time helping people understand the emerging field of educational neuroscience. Is it just another bandwagon or pop science? We've asked this question before on the show, and it seems like the consistent message is that educational neuroscience is now increasingly informing educational practice and research. If it is for real, then how do we implement it? And what does this mean for future teacher education and professional development? In this episode, Mima helps us understand what to make of it all. Mima, thanks for joining us again. Good to be here, Colin. It's great to have you back on the program. Uh, Today's topic is educational neuroscience, and I say it like that because uh, I I can just imagine many people listening to this might be thinking, okay, here we go again. Here's the latest thing that I have to think about for the next couple of years before it fades away. Now, I've asked some previous guests on the program about this. Is it for real? Is it a fad? Is it pop science? Or even worse, is it something that educators and educational administrators like to talk about at the beginning of the year to set a new intellectual tone? Look, I think this is a very important question, very timely. Um, We have uh, just had a a Pearson conference, the Mind Brain Education Conference, where we actually set out to examine this idea. And and my belief is that... um, you know, it, it was faddish. We did go through uh, a period of, of, uh, of pop science, you know, where we were very excited after the decade of the brain. Uh, we, we were very excited about the potential of these insights for education. But I think we went too early. And uh, there was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of myths that were generated about the, the, what, what neuroscience can actually provide to education. So, in our conference, we very specifically invited speakers that could show us they had an evidence base for, for what they said, that, that they could um, bring together what we did know. I think, I think teachers are actually uh, almost at the other end of hearing uh, too much that you know, neuroscience is, uh, has nothing to give to, to uh, nothing solid to give to education yet. You know, we don't do neuroscience in the classroom. People aren't sitting in, uh, in an MRI machine. And, you know, we, 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 uh, th- 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 there is a lot of scepticism about that. And I think that that's, it was, there was, it's right for us to have had that reaction. But I challenged the speakers at this conference to show us, well, what do we know? What can we use? What is reliable knowledge about the way that we think and attend to information and process information and remember information at work in the classroom? What is it about emotions and social skills and so on that, 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 that are present in the classroom 
that neuroscience can help us to understand better because we can understand that we can we can actually be better teachers and better learners too. Oh, I guess on, on, on one level it's uh, disappointing that it didn't catch on earlier because we could have catapulted teachers right to the top of the intelligentsia by saying, congratulations, you're now all practitioners in applied brain science. And, uh, you know, the old saying, oh, come on, mate, it's, it's not brain science, you know. Well, actually it is. It is, exactly. <laughs> Le- learning is about making physical connections in the brain. And, and our learning architects, our teachers are having a biological effect in the classroom they're actually working at that level okay so so it's not pop science no um there 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 has been uh people extrapolate i think though in their enthusiasm for this for this information so what the challenge is to you know apply what we know about attention for instance uh in, in the classroom and test it out in the classroom and make sure that it works because it's only when it's tested in the classroom that we can say this has an evidence base. So knowing that um, you know students are distracted by movement and, uh, and and noise, you know that's what attracts their attention. Um, if that's the case, let's test that in the classroom and see if we deliberately do that versus not doing that. What, what is the effect that that has? Can we measure that impact that it has? And can we change our behaviour to follow those rules afterwards? So it's insights like that that uh, groups like the Science of Learning Research Centre, for instance, they're testing. They're, they're taking ideas from the neuroscience and they're applying it in the classroom. And it's when we can do that that we can actually gain a lot of confidence. And a lot has been done. There's a lot that we do know now that to make this legitimate science. Now, that's fascinating. You've indicated something there that's just sort of sparked an idea for me where you've said that, you know, we know that certain things will distract students. Now, distraction is well it's 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 got to be one of the top three things that we talk about in school or or even on report cards you know there's the classic must try harder or the uh is easily distracted now we talk a lot about learning spaces now and and what i thought of just as you were saying that was well are we suggesting that if i just put a student at a at a chair and a table in a completely white room with no other stimuli that they're going to be better attenders or do we go all the way to the other end of the spectrum where we talk about really diverse, beautiful, stimulating learning experiences with, you know, colourful uh, things on the wall and things hanging from the ceiling and, 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 and sensory areas and all that sort of thing? I mean, wh- where do we strike the balance there? Yeah, again, great question. There is research to show that, um, you know, Students actually might do better in a, in a in an environment where there are less distractions, or conversely, use that information to your advantage. Uh, one of the schools that I work with in Victoria at, at Broadmeadows Primary School, they've actually rebuilt their school and they have no walls, so all of the classes are actually happening in this one large space. Lots of curves and bookcases and so on, but there's still no walls. They ha- they are forced then to. If they're going to listen to what the teacher's saying, if they're going to follow instructions, they actually have to be very attentive. They have to change their behaviour in order to listen. So they've used the, you know, they've used the constraints there to their advantage. Teachers use novelty and surprise to get students' attention. We know that that distracts kids. Well, we're going to distract them in a positive way. You know, it's a, the, the neuroscience 
gains you know that for education aren't going to happen in the lab we learn stuff in the lab we measure things in the lab but in the end it's the way that teachers apply what we've learned in the classroom that's where the magic is and that's where the creativity is um, the, the more we can bring these two sciences together <laughs> the, the, yeah, the pedagogy and the, the neuroscience then, then that's when things start to get really interesting let me just pick up on that point. The, the term educational neuroscience suggests very blatantly that teaching with this in mind is a scientific approach, where it's, it's been described to me by another uh, guest on, that we've had on the program, uh, who is also a neuroscientist, that pedagogy is more like philosophy of education. And my, my question is, are we likely to see one replace the other or become dominant? Or are we looking at a, a 50-50 coexistence? How do you see that playing out? Oh, I see it as integration, integrative. And, and in fact, uh, I, I think it's more than just education and pedagogy. Educa uh, sorry, I think it's more than just neuroscience and educational pedagogy. I think it's, it's an understanding of, of behaviour through psychology as well, so cognitive psychology and philosophy and sociology you know there's there's cultures that happen in a classroom that are studyable and are going to impact on these same findings um i, I recently spoke to uh professor tracy tokohama espinoza she was out here for the conference and you know she has written a textbook around this very idea that we need to integrate these ideas and from there we're going to get the best practice the science part comes from maintaining that discipline of testing this in, in the environment of the classroom. Um, these, these, have, uh, these ideas are often individually tested out in, in, in the lab, but what, what is the effect in, in, in the classroom and doesn't ring true? Um, you don't want to extrapolate what you find in the lab to, to, to something happening in the classroom. You need, you need to test it. So we've talked in a previous discussion about social, emotional and cognitive development of students. And I was going to ask you, what are we talking about here, science or philosophy? But from what I'm gather gathering here, it's, it's both. It's science, philosophy and something else that you've mentioned, which is sociology. Yeah, yep. and, 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 the, and psychology, you know. Students who feel that they, uh, they, they, they don't belong, they don't feel safe, um, you know, that, that inhibits learning. We, we know at the neuroscience level, at least, that information that comes into our um, brains first goes through the emotion filter. And if we feel at all threatened, um, fearful, or out of place, then that then, then, then the it's very hard for, for you to go further than that. It, that information doesn't even get to the cognitive layer, our thinking part of our brain. Um, we shut down, and we've had that experience, I'm sure... I know I've, I've forgotten my own best friend's name when I've introduced her in, in, in company that was, uh, you know, pretty pretty daunting. We forget things. We 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 don't think well when we're stressed. Um, so so just understanding that um, makes a big difference at that at that at that level. Uh, there is science there. We can we see that. We can we can test that. We know that when, for instance. Um, students are feeling joyful and happy and engaged, that is the best primer for learning that you can find. If you arouse a child's curiosity about a subject before you launch into new information about a subject, they actually remember more new information than if you don't do that curiosity raising exercise to start with. So there's lots of things we know about the brain that comes from looking at it 
in, in an MRI and testing things out, but that we can actually practice in the classroom and measure, measure its efficacy. Let's go down the sociological path a, a little bit deeper here. Let me ask you a question about behaviour. Now, when we talk about cognitive development and behaviour, can we see correlation there or are we drawing long bows here or is it, is it just wishful thinking to think, if my students get smarter, they'll behave better? Oh, look, there is certainly a connection. Um, I'm thinking of a research paper I've uh, looked at recently um, by Rowan and Hadwin in the United States, and it made the connection between uh, working memory capacity and uh, outcomes at school and the way that kids feel about themselves, their affect. Um, and a lot of kids who are doing poorly at school have negative affect. You know, they think of themselves as bad learners. They don't make that day-to-day -day progress if they see other kids making. They start to think of themselves as dummies or, you know, failures. And it gets harder and harder as the kids get older to turn that around. They, get, they develop negative habits of, of, of thinking. And it turns out that if you can improve their academic outcomes by improving their working memory, you can also improve their, their affect, the way that they feel about themselves. These things are very closely intertwined, um, partly because of that amygdala happening, you know, part of the effect of that of, of, of uh, stress and anxiety and how you feel, you know, affecting your, 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 your performance. But, uh, yeah, all of, all of these things are very closely related. More from my discussion with Mima in a moment. If you'd like to go back to the discussion on working memory, then check out the Learning Capacity Archives, episode 44. You can find it at soundcloud.com slash learnfast and listen to it straight from the web or search for Learning Capacity on your favourite smartphone podcast app. Once again, that's episode 44. Now, neuroplasticity implies that the brain is adapting, it's plastic, it's changing itself based on the, the stimulus that it gets or the work that it has to do. And we always talk about that presumably for the better. So we talk about student improvement. Um, can the opposite occur? That is, we know about use it or lose it, but is there actually something a little bit more serious going on? Now, we talked in a previous discussion about the brain pruning connections. Um, can the brain unplasticize itself or can the opposite occur there are two different mechanisms here so so pruning is one if something isn't practiced then the brain doesn't think that, i guess it's there's this uh it, it it's not considered useful and and therefore it fades away you know that that uh, that pathway the pathways less used uh don't don't become um don't become strong connections um and, and, and an adult brain is a lot more efficient and has um, has a lot fewer connections than, say, a young person's brain where they're, where they're early starting life. So pruning is happening for things that we don't practice. But on the other hand, plasticity works in both positive and negative ways. So we know that if we do lots and lots of cognitive training around attention, we can improve attention. Um, and, you know, as a result of doing that intensive and specific and positive practice, but we also know that if uh, if I'm in a negative environment, I'm hearing, uh, you know, negative comments and bad thinking, bad thoughts about myself continuously on a daily basis, and that's being reinforced by the environment around me, what other people are saying to me. That also, that way of thinking, that also becomes a, a habit. 
and uh, you know we see spirals up as uh, I think Barbara Fredrickson calls it the broaden and build theory you know you can spiral towards positivity but you can also spiral in a negative way as we're building that that strength that habitual sort of thinking with lots and lots of practice um, so, so you know one of the great things that we learn um, from both neuroscience and psychology and 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 study of the culture of the classroom is that we need to outweigh um, negative thinking um, by a factor of three to one if we're going to make an impact on on, on this sort of stuff. Well, that reminds me of times when people go through stressful situations and I think every single one of us, our listeners included, would would be able to relate to this where you you get into a stressful situation and you immediately think, oh, think positive thoughts, think positive thoughts, you know, and you try to imagine yourself only thinking positive things to to do anything that you possibly can to um, overwhelm the negative that's coming your way or or the the impending danger. That's right. There's actually numbers matter, you know, that quantity matters. Um, Our our brain is actually wired to minimize danger um, and maximize reward we have you know for survival we have something like five times uh, more networks in the brain devoted to um, to uh, to saying no you know to resisting change than we do to to uh, responding to positivity is that right yeah so we and it's it's for our survival you know we 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 learn to automatically you know uh, fight flight or, or freeze you know you, you, you run away from, from danger before you've even thought about it you know our whole system is designed to do that so there are lots and lots of imagine there's this gigantic machine and there's lots of lots of wiring and lots of systems in place to make sure that you're on the alert that, that the negativity trumps every time so you have to very explicitly and um uh you know, outnumber that. You have to do positive things very deliberately. Um, and some of the things that good teachers do in class is actually to, you know, respond only with, with, with positive feedback. It doesn't mean that you you speak inauthentically or, or, or build up people with empty, empty uh, compliments, but it's about noticing the good things and commenting on them, building up that, uh, that number of positive expectations and positive feelings compared to the, the negative ones. And, and it's when you outnumber them by a rate of about three to one that you start to see change. And that's been measured. Again, this is science. We've, we've done these studies. Barbara Fredrickson is, is the name that you want to look out for in that area. So the neural connections to say no outnumber the neural connections to say yes. I guess teachers could use that immediately as part of their toolkit when, let's say, you get into a situation where someone's being uh, difficult or resistant or you've asked someone to do something and they just look at you and say no, suddenly you think, hmm, yeah, I've got a pretty good idea as to why you've said no because, well, I guess on one level, you're naturally wired to do that. That's <laughs> if, right. If you're, not a, if you're not a generally compliant person, that's generally how you're going to react, so it's not unusual. It's not, it's, it's not so much saying no, it's about sticking to what we no. So habits. Our brain is a habit-forming machine. You know, like we we, we tend to to uh, to resist change is probably the better way of thinking about it. What we're doing in a, in a classroom where we're learning or where we're trying to teach new communication skills or new relationship skills and social skills, better ways of strategizing uh, how we feel about ourselves. All, all of that is behavioral change, and that's tough. We are wired to resist change um, and so you have to work pretty hard at it 
And, and that's why when we talk about neuroplasticity, we say it's not easy to change things. You can change your behaviour, but it needs to be lots of, lots of repetition, lots of practice, lots of reward. It has to be meaningful. It has to be specific. Uh, all of these things are involved in getting neuroplastic change. I see an interesting paradox coming out of this discussion. I wanted to just finish with this one. The the classic three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. We say, generally speaking now, that, well, that's what we used to do in the old days. Yet, if you did your arithmetic repeatedly and intensively, you got pretty good at things like your times tables and you learned mm -hmm. how to write pretty well and all that sort of stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that those things are, are very valuable. Yet today we talk more about these um, harder to measure and even harder to describe skills like creativity. I mean, where do you start to describe or measure that? Yeah. Now, what we're suggesting here is that the educational neuroscience model says that if we do things with intensity and with repetition, uh, we will get better at them. So are we actually losing something by saying, well, we don't talk so much about the three R's anymore? Oh, look, no, I, I, I think I, I, this is one of my strongest messages, I think. Like we, we're not throwing away the content. We're not throwing away the baby with the bathwater. Reading and writing is absolutely important, and these are skills that we do want to practice and uh, get lots of repetition and lots of skills in. Uh, it's the same mechanism that applies. The only thing I would say is that we, we don't want to, to focus solely on content at the expense of explicitly training some of those other skills. Emotions are also trainable. Social skills are also trainable. Thinking skills are trainable. Ron Richard, who I know has been a, a, a guest on your show, he talks about setting up thinking routines. If you ask the same questions in the same way over and over again, they become routine, they become habit, and they teach us a way of analysing and approaching a problem. You've still got to do the work, <laughs> but if you can apply those thinking skills to what you're reading and how you're reading, that's when you get success. You need to attend to both, and it's the same mechanism of practice and challenge that underlies success in both of those areas. I was going to ask you, once we have it, in terms of you know the use it or lose it idea, once we ha have it, how do we keep it? As in, once I've accumulated all this stuff, all this uh, ability to learn, ability to think, uh, a, a long-term knowledge base. How do I continue to remember all of these accumulated things? I mean, I've got a lifetime ahead of me. Are, are some things just not going to make it into long-term memory? Or, I mean, how does that work? We remember the brain's job is to is very simple for all of its complexity that people like to talk about, and uh, it, it's it's simply to minimise danger and maximise reward. We will remember what's important to us. We will learn what's important for, to, for us, and and it's a part of what what we practice and what we're motivated to to attend to. Um, so so you know you won't remember everything that you learned in second grade, but. Because you need your, to, your language skills and you, you need your writing and, and basic math skills on a day-to-day -day level, you, you're going to remember you're going to remember those because you're practicing them all the time. And you're going to, more importantly, you, you remember how to get in, to, to find information, how to ask questions, how to um, get around a particular problem, how to deal with how you're feeling at the moment, which is interfering with your thinking. 
you know, they're the skills that are increasingly valuable in this world. Um, the other, the other thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is, you know, if we get better at what we practice, how, how does technology have an effect on us today? You know, I, I, um, I'm increasingly asked by parents and teachers, you know, are we, are we spoiling kids' brains with, uh, you know, the use of mobile phones and, and games that give a reward every two seconds? <laughs> um, and it's, it, it's, it's possibly true. The evidence is still out on this. But it's, it's possibly true that we're training ourselves to not be able to remember much. How mm. many of us remember telephone numbers anymore? Yeah, I mean, you, well, you just, you just look it up. How many of us even have to... I, I see my my 20-year-old daughter, you know, and she, she plans an, a, a, a night out. They don't have to actually have those executive function skills of planning to the nth degree all the details and all the steps that are involved because they just ring each other every two minutes and, <laughs> and, and adjust their plans as they go. Yes. So we're not getting that practice, if you like. Um, and, and the strong message to educators, to parents out there, give kids challenges give kids problems to solve give them the practice that they need because that's what they'll use in the long term it's what they practice is what they'll get better at so it won't be too long before teachers really are brain scientists or applied brain scientists oh i think we are i i, I think that that's the role that you can proudly wear um the, the 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 one thing perhaps that we're not doing that i challenge teachers to do is collect the data Notice what effect these strategies have in the classroom. Measure it and uh, and adjust your tactics um, depending on on what, on what you find. Um, teachers as scientists is the idea that we're we're, we're trying to promote at, at Pearson. Know the neuroscience, know the psychology, know the sociology uh, and philosophy, but you've got to practice it and test it in, in the environment and that's what makes you a scientist. I think we should immediately allow teachers to put another three letters behind their name, ABS, Applied <laughs> Brain Scientist. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Some great insights there, Mima. Thanks for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about the CogMed Working Memory programs or the Fast for Word programs, then visit learnfasthome.com.au. And you can comment on this podcast, send your emails to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.